Let us look at Hebrews chapter 5. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. This is our 10th sermon in Hebrews. For those of you keeping count, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning, and we'll be looking at Jesus, our great high priest, part 2. Now, as we come to Hebrews 5, we're coming to what, what is the central argument, the central section of the entire letter, the entire book of Hebrews. And this center section extends from five, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. And it's focused on the high priestly ministry of Jesus, and specifically in relation to the earthly sacrificial system. That's the main point. That's, that's the biggest section and the biggest foundation of, of the book of Hebrews. The main argument of the entire book is found in chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. And the focus is the reality, the, the real, genuine ministry of Jesus that's taking place right now in heaven, in the true Holy of Holies, in our place as a priest forever. And so chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 are going to make that argument carefully and systematically, and it's going to make that argument very thoroughly. And so this week, as we transition from, from verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 into verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, it is our great high priest, part 2. And if you just, just look, if you have your Bibles, ju- just look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, what we looked at last week. But look there at, at 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, that's how ch- verse 14 starts, In verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Okay, so so that's verse 16 of chapter 4. That's the front end. That's that's the the beginning of this this section. Let us draw near with confidence the throne of grace. And then if you flip all the way to chapter 10, this is the end of the section, the, the last bracket, the end bracket of this section. There in verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, again, that's repetition, same thing said in in verse 16 of chapter 4, let us, down in verse 22 of chapter 10, let us hold fast to our confession of hope and draw near, he says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so this, this section is bracketed by the, this encouragement to draw near to Jesus at, at the, the Holy of Holies, in the, 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 the true place of God's dwelling, to the throne where Jesus now sits. And so the, the great high priest is the point, and, and he's going to argue convincingly that Jesus is the great high priest. And so we're going to see that beginning here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. We're going to see the greatness the superiority of Jesus as high priest over and above every other priest that's ever been or ever will. And specifically in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see that Jesus both both fits the bill of all all the the priests that came before, but he also exceeds far beyond the bill of all that's come before. And so we're going to see in some ways in verses 1 through 10 how Jesus does fit the mold of the high priest of old in, in the pattern of Aaron, but... We're also going to see how he is vastly superior to Aaron and all the other priests that came after him. So so, so that's what we're going to see. Let let me read our verses. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. Then I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look at three points from this this passage. So Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 
It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to, to order gifts and sacrifices for sins. He that is the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, that's his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Verse five, so also Christ, he did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quote, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, end quote. And he says also in another place, quote, you are a priest forever after the order, uh, order of Melchizedek, end quote. Verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for us. Father, this is your word, and this word tells us of our great high priest who has is, who is secured eternal salvation for those who trust and obey him. And so my prayer is that our faith in Christ would be firm, would be encouraged, or would be brought about for the very first time as a result of us looking at this passage. For we do have a great high priest in the person of the son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we work through this passage, there are three sections. So we'll have three points. And so we'll see here in verses one through four, the first point, the qualifications of a high priest. Okay, so we'll see that the qualifications of, of the, the, the high priest of old, we could call them. That's the first point. And then second, the transition in verses five through six, there's a transition to the appointment of Christ. So see the appointment of Christ second, verses five through six. And then third, we'll see the path, the path to appointment, verses seven through 10, because it's not as though Jesus was just appointed high priest and then it was done. No, there's a path that led to his appointment, which was not a likely path or, or an expected path. And so we'll see, and he draws that out in verses seven through 10. So let's start there, verses one through four, the qualifications of the high priests. And so as we work through these verses, like I said, we're going to see, we're going to notice qualifications of the priests, specifically the priests under the old covenant. So look first there at verse one. Notice that there's this qualification of solidarity. The, the high priest was, was in solidarity with the people. Look, look there, verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men. So, so there's solidarity there. The, the high priest must come from among men. That's the first qualification, the first requirement. The high priest is from among men. The high priest didn't come from, from angels or the deceased or, or any other category of being or person. The high priest was from among men. There was solidarity. And that was necessary because, notice the function there in verse one, the high priest was, was appointed to function on behalf of men. So he was a man so he could function on behalf of men, specifically in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so the high priest as a, as a true human was able to act on behalf of humans. He was a man, he was from among men so that he could act on behalf of men. This common source, this shared flesh 
would have certainly served as encouragement to the people. This, this was one of their own going into the Holy of Holies, serving God on their behalf. And so underneath it all, he was like them. Although though his clothing was, was wild, though his accessories were, were unique and his ministry was one of a kind, although he had a, a, a crucial role in maintaining the relationship between God and man, d- despite all of that, underneath it all, the high priest was one of them. And he was put in place for the specific purpose of offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so he was a mediator between God and man. He was appointed so that holy God, sinful men, could dwell in peace together. That's what the priest did. That's why he functioned. That's, he, he offered sacrifices and gifts for sins. And so that was his purpose. And, and he, was, he was one of them. And so he could, he could act as their representative, but also he could sympathize with them because he knew what it was like. Look at verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This high priest knew what it was like. He could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And, and these two categories, these aren't just special groups. The, these categories, the ignorant and wayward, are, are not unique categories within the people, but they are comprehensive descriptions of the people. Right? So, so it's not like there's a category of, oh, well, he deals with the ignorant and the wayward. No, he deals with all of them who all are ignorant and wayward. And so the human high priest could identify with the difficulties of those he was representing because he was like them. He was beset with weakness. I mean, this I thought about, this is a principle we see at work in our day, especially in politics. This is all I'll say about politics, but, but when you hear the, the cry, when people say, hey, drain the swamp, what do they mean? They mean, we want the professional politicians out of there. We want people like us. So, so get them out of, out of Washington. We want our representatives. We want people like us. We want real people representing us. Or you hear politicians say, well, well, let me tell you about what it was like for me growing up. Let me tell you about my history. Let me tell you about my difficulties. I'm just like you. You need me to go to Washington. Right? And so the principle is simple. I'm like you, so, so put me there. Or I want someone like me, so I want him to be or her to be in Washington. The principle, we want people representing us who know what it's like to be us. And that principle was built into the high priestly system. The human high priest could deal gently because he himself was beset or plagued with weakness. And so this was the intention of the system. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, this isn't the way it played out consistently in Israel. In fact, the high priests were often the most harsh, the unsympathetic. They they took advantage of the people. But the ideal, the system was set up so that the human high priest knew what it was like and he could deal gently with the people. There was solidarity and so th- these, these were qualifications of the old covenant, uh, of the high priests. And, and the difference, there's going to be a big difference when it comes to Christ and, and all the other high priests, but, but the weakness for the old, old covenant priests required, look at verse 3, that the weakness required the priest to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he did for those of the people. And so he was weak, he was beset with weakness, he had his own sins, and so even before he could go and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, he had to offer sins for himself and his family and then the people. Because he was beset with weakness, he had to deal with his own sin. He was a sinner in need of sacrifice, just like those he was representing. And so the ideal priest was aware of his weakness and was aware of the need for forgiveness for himself, and he would, he would offer what was required for that, and then he would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people he shared in their flesh, and he knew what it was like. 
And so there's solidarity. But the second qualification, the one that plays the biggest role into these verses, is the appointment. So not only was he a human chosen from among men, but he had to be appointed. A qualification for the high priest was that he had to be appointed. That's the word that's used in verse 1, but it's also the idea that's clearly conveyed in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor, what honor? The honor of high priest for himself, but only when called. By who? By God, just as Aaron was. And so the line of Aaron, those who served as priests, were chosen by God. They were appointed. The process was fixed every time. And, and, and so if you, if you were to, to visit an Israelite elementary school, no child ever heard the words, hey, if you just believe in yourself, you can one day be a high priest. That, that wasn't attainable for just anyone. It was set. Only the line of Aaron could be a high priest. For anyone else, that was impossible. And so the honor of serving as high priest was bestowed only on those who were called or selected or appointed by God. It was a divine calling. And we see that playing out in Exodus chapter 28, where where the Lord tells Moses, bring Aaron, your brother, close and and his sons, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to serve as priests. And so it is this qualification, the divine calling, the appointment to the office that leads the author of Hebrews to begin transitioning from from the old covenant priest to Christ, the great high priest. It's, It's the idea of appointment that's the hinge between Aaron's line and Christ. And he shifts this focus from Aaron to Christ, and and he does so by highlighting divine calling, the appointment there in verses 5 and 6. And he does this because he wants to know his his audience that every high priest is only legitimate, is only qualified to act on behalf of men in relation to God if he is appointed by God for that task. And in arguing for Christ as the great high priest, he wants to ensure that they know that Jesus was appointed no one can come along and say, no, 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 where, where was Jesus appointed priest? He can't serve as high priest unless he's appointed. And, and he can't just come along and drop on the scene in Nazareth and say, hey, here I am. And so he wants to make clear that they understand that Christ was appointed. And so he does that in verses five and six. Look there at verse five. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed and what he does to, to, to make that point is he quotes two Old Testament passages, actually two, two verses from the Psalms. And so the main point here, the beginning of verse five, so also, when he says so also, he, he's, he's drawn the comparison. Just like Aaron was appointed and his sons were appointed, they, they were appointed by God, they didn't take it upon themselves. That's the same with Christ. He was appointed. He didn't exalt himself. And so that's the main point. That's, hard to, that's not hard to see, but, but we need to ask ourselves, why does he use those two passages, those two psalms, to make his point? How does he support the claim that Christ didn't appoint himself but was appointed? And so if you look at your Bible, there are probably two offset quotation marks or, or sets of quotations there in verse 5, 1 and 5, and 1 and 6. And so these are two Old Testament passages. So first look at that first quotation mark there in verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm chapter 2. And if, you've, if you were with us several weeks ago, that same quote was mentioned in chapter 1. And it's in chapter 1, when the author of Hebrews begins the book of, of Hebrews, he argues that Jesus was the superior son and greater than all, every, all, all else. He was the Lord himself, and he was much greater than all the angels. And in arguing for the superiority of Christ over angels, he said, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? And so he quotes Psalm 2 to say, you're my son, today I've begotten you. 
And the point there in Hebrews 1 was that Jesus is the divine son. And if you read Psalm chapter 2, it's a, it's a royal psalm, which argues about the, the, the rule and the reign of the divine son, the king, the throne. And the point in Psalm 2 is that the son has a unique relationship with the father, the, the, the kingly role of the son. And so the, the argument of Psalm 2 that was used in Hebrews chapter 1 was that that, that the Son is the Lord himself, the divine king, and here he's bringing up that same quote again because he's wanting to secure in our minds the kingly, royal identity of the Son. But he wants to go one step further and say, now, the, the Son, the King, the royal Son of David, whose throne will be forever, that one, he was appointed to that, but, but it goes one step further. Not only was appointed King, the second quote is mentioned to be taken in, in coordination with the first. Second quote, you are a priest forever after the order of, order of Melchizedek. And that's another psalm, but that, psalm is from, or that quote is from Psalm 110. And so the first quote, stick with me, Psalm 2, the kingship of Christ is established, and it's established by the fact that you are my son today, I've begotten you, you're made son by the Father, you are recognized as son, kingship, it's God's doing. And secondly, Psalm 110, the great high priest, you are high priest forever. That also was God's own doing. He was appointed to the position of high priest. That's why Psalm 110 is quoted here in verse 6. You are a priest forever. That's a declaration from God. Notice in both of these psalms, both these quotations, there's direct communication between the Father and the Son. You are my Son. You are a priest forever. And both these are quoted to make the point that Jesus didn't take these roles upon himself. They weren't a result of his own initiative. He was appointed. And he's appointed not only as divine king in Psalm 2, but also the high priest in Psalm 110. And so these two offices, these two roles, the king and priest, form the basis of the Christology of the book of Hebrews. In Christ, the author's going to argue, and he's beginning here, we have the priest king. In him, we have the two offices in one person. So Jesus is not only the high priest of Psalm 110, but he's also the ruler king of Psalm 2, and he's in one person. And it's in this Psalm 110 quote where Jesus is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that, I wouldn't recommend that as a name if you're expecting a child. That's not a, it's not a really good choice for name, but that is a very significant figure in the life and history of Israel and in the history of the new covenant. Because Jesus is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 7, we're going we're gonna to get into the weeds of Melchizedek, but right here, all I'll mention is that when Melchizedek comes on the scene, Abraham has just defeated all these kings and now he's coming back from battle and he meets this man named Melchizedek and this is Genesis 14, you can read it. But what's recorded there is as, as Abraham's on his way back, he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest unlike any other priest. We haven't heard anything about him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. But, but he shows up, and he's different than any priest that, that's been mentioned, and he's different than the Aaronic priesthood that would come later. And in Genesis 14, verse 18, it says that he was a priest of God Most High. We don't know where that priesthood came from. We don't know that. But we know he was a priest of God Most High. But he was also, Genesis 14, 18 says, he was also a king. And so he's the priest, but he's also a king. He was the priest king. He, he's this type, this shadow, who's a precursor of what was to come in the person of the Son. 
And so the author of Hebrews, I mean, this is significant for understanding the, the, the entire New Testament and who Jesus is, but the author of Hebrews is saying the priest king, Melchizedek, is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the type of Melchizedek. And that's why he, he quotes these two psalms together. One commentator says, by welding together these two texts, the author has demonstra- demonstrated the vital connection between Jesus and son, Jesus as son and as high priest for the Christology of Hebrews. He who is the perfect son of God from the beginning becomes the perfect high priest, the king and the priest, one person. And Jesus was appointed to this position. And so this appointment, the the service of Jesus as high priest who is also king, the service of, of the exalted one, it didn't come about in an expected way. Instead, the path to this appointment was one of suffering and obedience. It's a path that paved the way for sympathy. That's what we're going to see. And so, so let's look last in this last section, point three, the path to appointment. How does Jesus get to this role, get to the heavenly entrance and into the, the, the position of high priest? Look there at verse seven through 10. This is the path, the path to appointment. And again, the bigger context, how is Jesus able to sympathize with those he represents? Because remember, that's the bigger picture here, how he's appointed, yes, but can he identify? Can he share with the the sufferings of the people? Is he able to, to, to sympathize with them? And so remembering, it's already been emphasized in several places that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, that he was a great high priest able to sympathize and he had been tempted in every way. That's what we saw at the end of, of chapter four. But here, he wants to reiterate that, that Jesus can sympathize, that he knows what it's like to suffer. And so look at there, verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, and he did so with loud cries and tears. And he offered up these prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. That's verse seven. Now, now, although it's a different type, the picture here of, of Jesus in verse seven is of a weak Jesus, isn't it? Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Prayers and supplications being offered. And, and, and do, 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 you, do, you, can, do you have a category for a crying and weeping Jesus praying to the Father? Offering prayers and supplications. And, and it certainly is why we read the, the Matthew 26 Garden of Gethsemane account earlier because this is almost certainly what it's a reference to. If you remember Jesus in the garden on the verge of crucifixion, right? So, so here he is, truly human. During the days of his flesh, during the incarnation, he cried out with a voice and with tears, with anguish. And he cried out, it says, to the one who was able to save him from death which tells us the author has in mind that the cry of Jesus that, that was read, that will read to, to let the cup pass from me. His cry, if there's another way, if there's any other way, if it be possible, let this cup pass. There's anguish. There's this, this temptation to, to coil, recoil at the thought of, of suffering and cru- being crucified. And so Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as a true human feels fully the weakness of his flesh. And in in feeling that, he's praying for deliverance from the crucifixion that awaits him, which shows quite clearly that he knows what it's like to feel the pull away from costly devotion. He he sees the path, and he says, I I don't want that. That is a genuine human pull. I I know what awaits me, and and it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. I don't want that. If there's any other way, Father, let let it happen. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted to fall back in the face of suffering. But the question, hopefully you recognize, the question at the end of verse seven is, what does it mean at the end of verse seven? He offered a prayer of supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. And he was heard, it says, because of his reverence or because of his reverent submission, or if you have the King James, he was heard because he feared. And, and so what does it mean that he offered up these cries and, and his cries, his prayers were heard? As I read that, the assumption that I make is that God answered his prayers and supplications. I think when he says God heard him, it means God heard him and God answered him. Now, I think the assumption is that he answered him positively. I think the assumption, and, and I'll tell you why I think that, but I think when, when he says this, he means that Jesus cried out and God answered positively and granted his request. Now, I recognize that it could simply mean that he was heard and that God didn't answer his prayer or, or that he, his request was heard and that God said, no, not today. Right? So that's what, that, is a, that is a legitimate understanding. I don't think that's right, but th- th- that, that does make sense. But I'm arguing that, that he was heard and that the father answered positively, yes, I will grant you your request. So hopefully you ask the next question, well, what did he pray for if he answered affirmatively? Right? It seems most likely, at least in, in my opinion, Jesus asked to be delivered from death. Right? That's why he cried to the one who was able to deliver him to it. He cries out to the one who can do what he's asking him to do. That, that makes sense. And so I think he's described that way because that was a request. Father, deliver me from death. Let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, deliver me from what's about to happen. Deliver me from death, which means if that was the request, which is what it appears to be, and if that request was heard and answered positively, then Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. That's what it seems like. And so I don't think that's the, the point. I don't think that's what Jesus asked for. At first glance, as I said, it seems that that's what he was asked, that he asked to be delivered from death and he was denied He was crucified. If you don't know, Jesus did go to the cross. Judas comes to Gethsemane and takes him, and he's arrested, he's put on trial, he's handed over to Pilate, he's let out, and he's crucified. He did die, which would seem to imply that he was heard and unanswered or heard and answered no. Unless, and here's where you gotta stay with me, unless, this is my point, unless there's a difference between being delivered from crucifixion and being delivered from death. And so was his request, I don't, want to, I don't want to be crucified, right? If that was the request and he was answered positively, then yes, that's a no. But if it's, I want to be delivered from death, that answered positively three days later, didn't it? Amen. He was delivered from death. God did not deliver Jesus from crucifixion, but he delivered him out of the realm or the power of death by saving him from death through resurrection and exaltation, which is exactly what led to his seat at the right hand of the Father as high priest. You see, God didn't answer the way that might be expected, but God heard the cries of the righteous sufferer, and he answered the cry of the righteous sufferer, and he answered, yes, I will answer your request. And he delivered the son. He delivered him out of death. He answered the cry of the son by raising him from the dead, victorious over death, delivered forever from death, vindicated. And so the loud cries of the the Messiah were heard. His tears were captured. He was not abandoned. He was delivered. And so I think he was answered affirmatively. And it it happened, according to verse seven, because of his reverence, because of his reverent fear which is the attitude that we see on display 
throughout the entire life and ministry of Jesus, especially in Gethsemane. Do you remember? Let it, let it pass, let it pass, but not my will, but yours. Right? There's a reverent submission, recognizing you're the father. You have the plan. I am here obeying what you would have me to do. I'm on mission for, for you, and I'm going to carry out your mission. Your will be done. And that's, that's his attitude. This, this reverent submission is what led to him being heard, it says in verse 7. Which then leads to verse 8, which is in the flow of this argument, as the argument is being made, is actually further evidence that Jesus is able to sympathize with those he represents. Look there at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, now most of your, vers- your versions probably have son as a lowercase. And, and, and if you read in that sense, although a son, he learned obedience through what was suffered, that makes perfect sense, right? Sons have to learn to obey. But, but there seems to be an a, a, a incompatibility there that starts, verse 8, although he was a son, and I'm going to argue, his point is, although he was the son, although he was the, the Psalm 2 divine son, although he was the son, which doesn't make sense, although this is who he was, although that's who he was, this is what happened, he learned obedience through what was suffered. Son though he was, he learned obedience. Though he was son, he learned obedience. This verse is drawing out the apparent contradiction contradiction between Jesus and learning. Even though he was a divine son, even though he knew all things, even though he couldn't learn anything, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned in a real sense, in a true experiential sense, what obedience was like. His path on this earth during his days of flesh was a path of obedience. His life was defined by a constant desire to do God's will. And that life led to continual encounters with resistance. And so he learned with every new opportunity to disobey, to to be disobedient, to rebel, he was faithful. He obeyed, and and as situation after situation after situation came and came, and and he was obedient, he learned obedience. He had to experience those circumstances, and he learned experientially faithfulness. He was faithful, and he learned obedience. And and his, his path, the mission, required obedience. Just because he was God in the flesh didn't mean that a life of faithfulness to the Father was a walk in the park. He had to learn, experience the cost of faithfulness. And he did so from day one to the cross. As Jesus encountered situation after situation after situation where his obedience was difficult, his faithfulness in the face of opposition is what enables him to be able to sympathize with the weakness of the people he represents. He knows what it's like. As a true human, he knows what it's like to fight for faithfulness. And the result... Let's not forget the result of his obedience, the outcome of his faithfulness, of his one life of righteousness, of his perfect obedient life, wasn't, at least initially, it wasn't coronation in a crown. That wasn't the outcome of his obedience. Initially, it wasn't coronation in a crown. Instead, it was crucifixion in a cross. That was the outcome of his faithfulness. His obedience, his path of faithfulness led to suffering and death. Yet, he still walked it. He still submitted to the will of the Father. He still obeyed. He still cried, your will, not mine. And therefore, verse 9, he was made perfect. He was made complete. He, He was suited for the office of high priest because of what he experienced. 
He wasn't made perfect in that he was morally lacking something that made him better. No, that's not possible. He was made perfect in that he was, he was fitted just right for the role that he was appointed to as high priest. And being made perfect and, and being vindicated and raised and ascending to the right hand of the Father, he became the source of eternal salvation. The result of his suffering, which, which marked the path to his priesthood, a path that, that we remember led to the cross and to the grave, is a path that led to him being made perfect for this office of great high priest. And thus he was appointed and ascended to that office, to the place where he now serves. He wasn't made perfect because he lacked anything. He was made perfect in the sense he was qualified for the office. As he walked the path of obedience and faithfulness, he was then able to represent his people in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And it is Jesus whose life ended in crucifixion who is now the source of eternal salvation. And so there's salvation in no other name. There's no other program. There's no other covenant. There's no other priest. There's no other source of salvation that's worth anything other than Christ. He alone is the source of eternal salvation because Christ alone is able to sympathize and intercede and identify with weak, needy sinners like us. And he's the source because Christ alone has shed his own blood for our sin. No one else has. No priest has. No no lamb or goat has. Christ has. And he alone is the great high priest who's able to save us. He alone is the great high priest who is the source, the means of eternal salvation. And he saves, notice verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to who? To all who obey him. Does that, does that kind of fall uneasily on your ears? He, he saves only those who obey him? Why, why you got to say that? Why stress obedience? Isn't it faith alone that saves? Why, why is this, this call to obedience? Well, first we recognize it's true. He means what he says, but, but we, all, we get a better sense by recognizing the tenor of this letter and the context of the hearers that he's writing into. Remember the point made all the way back in chapter three. Remember the idea of disobedience in chapter three? There's a whole generation of of those whose disobedience, whose unfaithfulness, whose rebellious was highlighted. And what did they do? They they didn't receive the word, the message with faith. They rebelled and they fell dead in the desert. They were disobedient. They refused to believe the word. They refused to enter God's rest. And this entire letter is to say, don't be like them. The entire letter has has aimed at promoting faithfulness. Hold fast to the, the word that's come in Christ. Listen to Christ. Hold fast to him. Don't abandon him. And what better way to communicate that theme than to highlight the eternal necessity of obedience? The people needed to hear that eternal salvation is only for those who obey Christ. If you forsake him, you have no hope of salvation, period. We're going to get to some really hard verses in chapter 5, but the point is, hold fast to Christ and you're safe forever. Refuse Christ, turn from Christ, fall away from Christ, and you have, you're not safe ever. And so don't be afraid because the, the whole point is, is to lift up. We have a great high priest. Hold fast to him, listen to him, obey him. Obedience is a holding fast, a faith. It's an obedience of faith, of, of believing that he is a source, the source, only source of eternal salvation. I mean, consider the alternative to saying he's the source of eternal salvation to all, to, to all who obey him. The alternative would be he's the source of eternal salvation to those who rebel and fall away and refuse to hold fast to him. 
Especially those who, when they're, they're little, there's little suffering in, in, in the, through the windshield, especially those who just say, well, that's too hard, and I'm not going to hold fast to Christ. Right? Does eternal salvation seem fitting for those? I mean, think about the context. These people he's writing to are facing potential persecution because of their confession, because of their holding fast to Christ and falling away from Christ. It would have made things a lot easier. It would have solved the problem. Forsaking Christ would have eliminated the prospect of suffering. It would have certainly been quite appealing. And it's into that context the author says, if you disobey, if you forsake Christ, if you turn from him, if you refuse to hold fast, you cannot be sure of your salvation. And he wants them to hold fast by showing them that Jesus knows exactly what it's like. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like for obedience or faithfulness to cost you something. Do you think you've, you've been obedient to the point of death on a cross, to the point of shedding your own blood for others? No, he, Jesus knows what it's like for costly obedience. He knows, he's on your side. He's willing, to, he's willing and able to give you help. He's able to give you grace and mercy in your time of need. That, that's who he is, and that's the author saying, draw near to Jesus, the great high priest. One commentator says, there's something appropriate in the fact that the salvation which was pro- procured by the obedience of the Redeemer should be made available to the obedience of the redeemed. We follow Jesus, and we walk the path of obedience despite what toils or dangers or snares might come. And so Jesus is appointed the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is where our passage ends. There in verse 10. And we're not going to pick up Melchizedek again until chapter 7. There's going to be this, this exhortation. It's going to be a really, some really difficult verses in here that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. But we'll get back to Melchizedek. But, but he leaves here saying, we have a great high priest. Who knows what it's like? And so let me pray for us, and, and then we're, we're going we're gonna to respond in, in some prayer, and then we're going to sing. So let me pray for us as we close.